We are all about charity here at Sex and Space, and today's awesome guest shout-out is for the Cerebral Palsy Society of New Zealand, an organisation that strives to enhance the lives of people with cerebral palsy in Aotearoa by providing programmes, support and advice. Their mission is enabling people with cerebral palsy to maximise their potential, and they value the diverse communities they are part of and work with integrity alongside all people, supportive of their gender, sexual orientation, ethnicities and cultures. Check them out at cerebralpalsy.org.nz Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found. Hi, I'm Tim, and welcome back to Sex in Space, here continuing to explore sex across all of its infinite dimensions. Greetings from the first episode of Season 2. It's great to be back. We're coming at you from our brand new but currently socially distanced recording studio. <laughs> I'm here with fellow co-conspirator today, our researcher, Dr. Jane Charrington. Hello. Hi. Hello, Jane. Hello. We are at least a metre apart. We are at least a metre apart. Uh, mm. We've decided to unshackle you and let you loose on some of our guests for this season. Exciting. Yep. Um, if this is your first time joining us, then stick around. Uh, we've got some great content coming down the pipes in the next few episodes. We've got Dr. Jane Fleischman, or... Dr. Jane versus Dr. Jane, as it's become... We had a lovely time. Yeah, as it's become known (laughs) in-house. I sit down with the founders of Girls Get Off, and we talk about getting off. And Jane chats with the awesome Sonia Renee Taylor. Amazing. Just going to drop those names there to wet your whistle. Um, Also, please do check out our back catalogue. We've had some great interviews with some awesome guests. Richie Hardcore, talking porn masculinity and living your values. Robin Salisbury on her journey into sex therapy. I'm getting stuck trying to say the word masturbate. (laughs) Dame Catherine Healy, legendary sex worker and activist and how she discovered lube for the first time. And Dolly and Emma from the School of Sexuality Education in the UK, talking porn, consent, sexting, healthy relationships and crafting vulvas out of homemade Play-Doh. We love hearing from people who listen to the podcast. Feedback does mean the world to us. It probably does different things to us, to be fair, with Jane being a professional researcher and me just seeking cultural and social approval. But <laughs> be as Researchers on- do that too, you know. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> be as honest as you want. Flick us an email at hello at sexandspace.com. Um, we also have an always-on quick and easy survey, which you can find in the photo of our website at sexinspace.com or in the link tree in our Instagram over at sexinspace.com. That's sexinspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. Um, Dr. Jane, researcher Jane, here's some research for us. I do. It's about um, disability and sexuality, Amazing. basically. Um, a billion people in the world, that's about 15% of us, mm-hmm. have some form of disability And when you do the research and look at how things are working for people in that world, um, there's a a shed load of stuff around how people are seen, how society looks at people with disabilities and um, doesn't recognise 
people as having um, a sense of sexuality. It tends to position them as asexual or in some cases hypersexual, but more asexual, yeah. as in elides desires, over, overlooks the fact that there might be anything to discuss. So not only is there a gap in education, um, which there is, like the rest of us, except it's much bigger. Yep. Um, you've also got people who aren't having conversations about their sexuality, even with those who care about them most sometimes, because it's just not considered as mm. a thing. Culturally, just not, yeah. not there. And so um, one study uh, that was done by some people we met found that over 50% of the physically disabled people they surveyed struggle to achieve sexual pleasure on their own. And the point of that is that there are a bunch of people who have a disability that means they can't self-pleasure, can't masturbate, because they don't have hand dexterity mm. or they don't have hand strength for whatever reason. Um, they don't have the ability to achieve sexual release. So that's a even bigger gap. It's like layers of space here to address. Yeah. And incredibly, what they also found is that there were no products that had been specifically made to meet the needs of this community. And that, uh, uh, with that in ask. mind, well, yes, yeah. but, but, you know, in this amazingly technologically advanced world in which we live, when you've got people inventing things that you can experience sexual pleasure remotely through your computer, you'd think somebody <laughs> yeah. might have had a little think here because <laughs> there's an awful lot of people we're talking about. And 90% of the people they surveyed said they wanted such a product. Yeah. So we found and today talked to the wonderful team that decided to do something about it. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Heather Morrison and Andrew Gerza are the co-founders of Handy. H-A-N-D-I. Handy are literally making sex toys designed by and for disabled people. Handy was started with the belief that everyone should be able to get off and they're on a mission to put sexual pleasure within everyone's reach. They unpack their fascinating origin story, their research and their fantastic first cab off the rank toy, the Handy Joystick. It's a great chat and an awesome way to kick off season two. Let's climb on in. And now... The interview. I'm going to jump right into to a, a phrase that was used yesterday because it seems to me to be an interesting kind of anchor point to explore from around your world and what you do. Um, that working together um, apparently came about as a result of a frank conversation. And I was wondering if you um, remember that conversation and what triggered it and what set this journey together in motion. Yeah, so so Heather had seen a video that I had done, a, a documentary that I was in, and that was a light bulb moment for her to understand my experience of not being able to self-pleasure. And then I had gone, I was in Australia visiting her and we were on the beach having brother and sister time. We were just talking about things, talking things through. And we were talking about my work in sex and disability and the work that I do. And the conversation continued. And she said, well, what kind of toys do they have for disabled people? Don't they have toys for you? And I kind of said, well, not really. None of the toys on the market work for me. And I, I explained that my, you know, to be able to use a, 
regular on the market toy involved dexterity. They had really small buttons. It was hard for me to to use a toy like that. And I showed her my hands and said, look how hard it is for me to like hold something as simple as like, you know, something small. So imagine trying to hold a toy in place Mm. to sell pleasure. It's just not something that I can do. And then so we kind of kept talking about it. And then very naively and playfully, she was like, well, do you want to make one? And I remember being like, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I if I want to if I want to make a toy with my sister. But the more and more we talked about it, <laughs> we realized that it was it was something that would impact the world. Yeah, we, we went back we went back home to our respective homes and did some research, and found that ninety two percent of the people that we interviewed that we surveyed to see if a toy like this would be something they wanted 92 percent said yes wow. so we realized that with numbers like that it wasn't just about making a toy for andrew to self-pleasure it was actually something that could it have been probably a lot weirder <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but still cool yeah i mean i mean it's something that you know had you asked me five years ago, would I be making a sex toy with my sister? And I'm sure Heather can can attest to the same. Would you be making a sex toy with your sibling? And we both say, oh, no, no. But it's <laughs> something that I think, you know, because we're brother and sister, we can have really frank conversations about it that aren't weird, that aren't strange. I mean, we're, we're so used to talking about it as a team now. Yeah. And both of us were just like, oh, yeah, we do a brother and sister sex play thing and people are like what whoa but it's you know something that i think makes the brand even that more fun and even that more unique yeah i um and the name is great um as a brand yeah we're, we're quite pleased with it it's an amalgamation well it's two things it's amalgamation of our names because heather and andrew so handy but also and more importantly it's it's a name that is is taking back the word handicap, which once had and does still have kind of a negative connotation to it and a negative history. So we were like, well, let's play with that. Let's make it really playful. And because we're dealing in something also that, you know, we're dealing with people with hand limitations, it really, the name carries a lot of weight within our community. And so we thought it was a fun and playful way to to talk about what we're doing that's brilliant um in the timeline of of your you know coming together to decide to do this when when did the book come about uh the book came about last year so we've probably been on the journey um uh we've been working on this for just a little over two years um we launched the brand uh last may so may is international masturbation month um and so it's a really good marker for us to talk about stuff um, because um, it's a time when the world is finally starting to celebrate self-pleasure uh, as part of um, holistic self-love. Um, and it's also within that time when there's a big portion of the population who's being told to just, you know, give yourself a hand and literally million, hundreds of millions of people around the world are like, yeah, cool, we can't. Yeah. Um, good one. Um, and so for us, it's a really good opportunity to bring that topic about. Um, so we launched the brand in May. 
Um, and we knew that we were probably going to be realistically lo- not launching the toys for another year to a year and a half, which is a very long period of time to be telling people that you're working on something um, and keep people interested in growing the brand. And we also realized from doing so many conversations and um like product conversations and just talking to the community just generally that there was um, a big need within the community to kind of have their experiences shared within the realm of sex and disability and and that not having that representation um, was actually causing quite a bit of like shame and isolation um, in the community itself and also perpetuating this kind of um, separation from the rest of society and um, just general um, misperceptions within able-bodied people as well. Um, and so I think everything we've done in this, in this, on this journey has been with some naivety. I think, <laughs> I think, I think in order to be an entrepreneur, maybe that's part of what you need to have. Um, yeah. But we said, you know, there's so much, there's so much conversation that, that needs a place to live. Maybe we should write a book. And it was really as, um, kind not in, unconsidered, but it was just kind of, you know, we should write a book. Um, yeah. And then the more that we kind of dug into that, the more that we realized actually how important this book could be. Um, and um, the more that we worked with the disabled community um, and the rest of the team um, at Handy to sort of pull it together, the more responsibility we all felt um, to actually do it justice to bring it to life because um, the stories that people were sharing with us and the artwork and the accounts that people were giving to us of their own lived experience um, was just so incredibly um, beautiful and raw and funny and, and sometimes all of those things together um, that we just wanted we wanted to do it justice in, in bringing it to the world but it was one of those things yeah where it was like yeah let's write a book and then the more we got into it the more we realized actually um, how important um, that project actually was mm. i mean i'll be honest i'm only i'm about two hours in i'm reading it i'm reading the ebook version or a couple of hours a couple of hours in and i i don't know what i'm going through at the moment uh maybe i'm going through something but i'm finding it really i like it's like a roller coaster of emotions for me it's 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 brilliant it's really i'm really loving it um i found it um just an amazing uh, insight into what seems like a very like hu- such such a human set of experiences um, in a way like identity, you know, coming to get coming to terms with sexuality, your own sexual preferences, um, body image, and and all of all of these kind of things, and and the struggles that we all have with things like um, you know confidence or um you know all all of these all of these things and it's just to sort of to read it and to um i don't know even just take on board just some of the some of the lessons for like myself as as just the readers just been like wow this is this is totally relevant for for me (laughs) and society more broadly um well, I mean, that's certainly the the reaction that we wanted. We wanted non-disabled people to read the book, even if they had no experience of disability, to read the book and feel like it also was something for them. I mean, our, the goal of the book was really twofold. We wanted the disabled community to have a place where they could see their story told back to them and those stories could live there and it could be a resource for them to feel not so alone. But mm. also we wanted to allow for the non-disabled community to read the book and to confront 
some of their own misconceptions around disability and some of their own ableism that they maybe didn't have words for, didn't know how to talk about and look at it in a way that didn't say you should feel ashamed for not knowing, but say, here's a resource for you to learn more from. So mm. the fact that you're saying that, you know, it's, it's eye-opening to you and it's something you've not considered, that's a good thing because going forward now, you'll have those stories and consider things a little bit differently. So, so we're, we're excited because it totally met its target then. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, for, sorry. I'm just going to say, I think like the other thing that was maybe an unintended consequence, but like we probably should have seen it coming, but maybe didn't is that it's actually, no matter if you're disabled or able-bodied, it's, it's incredibly relatable in so many, in so many ways. So I think that's also kind of one of the other things that you were sort of touching on there is like, doesn't matter if you're if you live with a disability or you currently don't because we're all humans and we all go through very similar emotional experiences particularly as it rate relates to love and lust and sexuality mm. um obviously the disabled experience has its own um like specificities within it but at the same time we're all human and we all have very similar emotional experiences and so when i was reading i was like i could relate to so many things and so many struggles i'd had around body image or coming to terms with different like pieces of my own personality and identity and i think like the more we realize that we're actually not all that different whether one of us has a disability or not um the, the more close we can become as a society Mm. We didn't, I don't think were, any of us were insightful enough to realize that that's also <laughs> one no. of the outputs. Um, but, but definitely reading it through, I was like, oh yeah, like <laughs> this is also me. And one of the things that sort of comes through what you just said before about, um, you know, we're all the same, I guess at some levels, that truth of am I normal? Am I okay? comes through in so much of every topic we go through, every everyone we talk to. But the other side of it is, of course, that we're not all the same. Mm. And so it's um, you, you were mentioning when we talked before that it's a journey of discovery from your end too um, with the people you've talked to. It'd be nice to hear how that felt to recognise such differences in the stories for yourself. Thank you, Andrew. Um, I think, I think it, as somebody with, with, you know, certain disabilities to read other stories of people with different disabilities and to understand that their experiences were different, but the feelings of shame, the feelings of wanting to be confident in your body, wanting to be sexy, wanting to be loved, wanting to be touched, wanting to access sexuality, those were very similar. So while the experiences of disability may have been vastly different. The desire for connection and to be able to feel sexy and to have lust and to have love all around disability was very much the same. So again, reading the stories of different disabilities was great because you got to learn something new about how disability and chronic pain affected somebody. Mm. But you also saw, I saw touches of myself in the other in the other storytellers because I was like oh yeah I want that too I want to feel connected I want to be told that I'm sexy I want to be told that my disability isn't a problem but is an asset I want all those things and so I think reading those stories was a great lesson in we cannot we can be different in some ways but same in, in a lot of other ways too yeah it's um 
it sounds like it's been quite a journey for you both through this process. Were you working in the space of sexuality before, Andrew, before you started this work? Yeah, I've been working as a, a freelance disability consultant in specifically sexuality and queerness and disability for about just almost 10 years. Um, so I finished school and I was like, oh, I need a job. I guess I better make my own. <laughs> I've been I've been working kind of in this space as a freelance kind of speaker for the last yeah just about ten years. So I have been yeah. And so that was a, an interesting job to uh, make for yourself. What what led you to that? Well, I, I had finished school. I have a master's of legal studies from my college, and I had been looking for work, and I had been applying to government, you know, looking for government jobs, something to that was really stable because. As we know, disability is very expensive and being disabled is very expensive. So my mom and our family was like, well, you should get a good job because you have this education. And if you get a good job, you'll be secure. And every time I would apply to these jobs, I wouldn't get them. And I would go out for interviews and I wouldn't get them. And I had I had worked in um, I had worked through college in a call center and doing like just a menial job just to make some money. And I found even that experience of being in the nine to five world was very inaccessible with mm. what my needs were. Just getting into work sometimes took two and a half hours. And then sometimes I'd have to leave the job because I'd have to use the bathroom and I, my my disability device would malfunction and I have to go home. So just trying to do an eight hour shift was just becoming untenable. And so when I finished school, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to get a good paying job where I can be accommodated. And I went to a disability employment center here and I said, I want to be a speaker. And they said, oh, that's a nice hobby. That's not a real job. Like you can't be, you can't be a disability speaker. That's not a job. And I basically was like, well, fuck you. I'm going to make it a job. <laughs> and so I went on Vistaprint and put a car with my name on it and said I was a disability consultant, um, not having any idea what that was. And Perfect. literally said, here's what I do now. Hire me. I guess this is what I do. And I just said, this is, these are the things I want to talk about. Um, and it kind of snowballed from there. Brilliant. That's so baller. I love it. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. And so w- what was your first gig? Um, I did an, a photo shoot for a gay magazine in Toronto called Fab. They wanted somebody to be their cover boy of the month or whatever. And so I wrote in and said, do you have anybody who is a wheelchair user and they of course said no and so I, I knew this and so I was like well you should have me because you need diversity on your pages and I totally milked that for all it was worth and I had a photographer come over and do a photo shoot and that went all over Toronto and and from that was kind of me kind of getting my feet wet and then from there I just cold emailed places like HuffPo and outlets saying I have a story I want to share this with you can I write some articles about being queer and disabled and they paid nothing they didn't pay anything but it was a way for me to get my name out there and start seeing if this is what I wanted to do and you know those got a little bit of traction and those got people on either side saying either they loved it or hated it but at least then people knew that I was talking about queerness and disability in a way that I don't think anybody had really done before I was very frank and very like outspoken to to in order to make a name for myself. And so from there, I just said, you know, I want to talk to, to universities. I want to go to 
sex education conferences. I want to do all this. And I just put myself in a path to go. And eventually, because of the stuff I had done, it picked up. And that's what I've been doing for 10 years now. So that's why when you Google name, pretty much you'll find him with pictures of him in his leathers. <laughs> yeah, I did find that, actually. <laughs> That was a cool shot. Yeah. <laughs> Try to find one that's not. <laughs> and how did you feel when you first um, saw those pictures as sister? Well, you didn't even tell me that you were, I don't even think you told me you were doing, I think I just saw the magazine one day. And was, oh, wow. Oh my God. <laughs> and then somebody at my work um, was like, is that your brother? And I was like, yeah. I, I don't think you actually mentioned that that was happening or if you did, you didn't make a big fuss about it. Cause I don't think, um you probably didn't realize like how big it was going to go but I think it ended no. up being was it was now magazine right yeah um it was one of the first times that the disabled body had been represented in that way not just with some of their clothes off but in leathers yeah. <laughs> like fully sexualized um not just like oh I've got my top off but like actually in a way that was like really forcing people to um reconsider their perceptions and like actually gaze on the disabled body with the perception of sexuality and sexiness um and I just thought like that was just so incredibly brave and um amazing um and kind of hilarious (laughs) but it didn't weird me out I just was like wow that's like really amazing I don't think any of us realized the impact it would have or like the sort of catalyst that it was um to the rest of the rest of your um career and trajectory from there yeah, I certainly didn't expect it to be what it was. And and at, at that point, Heather and I, we had no plans to be doing what we're doing. So, like, I wouldn't have been like, hey, look at this, like, sex thing I did, family. Like, I wasn't, I, like, people saw it. But again, I had no idea that it would go where it went. So, yeah, yeah. But looking back on it, it totally makes sense now that we're doing this. Yeah. Uh, has it made you braver about your own sexuality? Doing stuff like that and doing photo shoots like that. I mean, I'm shy. I'm as as bold as I am, kind of in in the work I do. I am very shy. I'm very like awkward. Even when, even though like my online persona, my public persona is be like, yeah, sex and disability is great. Like personally, I'm shy and I'm awkward. So like, I I think doing stuff like that does make me braver because it forces me to look at my own body and realize that I for myself. I'm a sexual being and that I deserve to be in these spaces too. And so every time I do something like that, even though I'm totally shy and awkward during the whole process of it happening, like I remember doing that photo shoot and having to like stand there in my leathers with, you know, all these photographers and try to look sexy, but I was freaking out. But to know that it's going to have an impact and it's going to like, you know, it's going to go around the around the world like that and have people see me still. You can Google that photo and see me in my leathers like now. So like to know that it's going to do that and change the perception of disability around the world, like that's powerful. So it does, yeah. it does make me very proud to be one of the first people who, to be as, as involved in terms of disability as I am because, you know, medically I'm considered severely disabled. So I'm very, very, very disabled. So to be able to do that, to show off my sexuality in that way as somebody who was told by the doctors, like, you know, you're just severely disabled. That's, that's who you are. That's it. So to be able to like kind of give them the finger in that way, like, look what I'm doing now. Like, look what I'm doing. I'm 
showing you all up and I'm awesome. So I think it does make me not braver. It makes me more confident in myself, I think. That's very cool. It is very cool. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, uh, it seems like, as you say, you're very, you're at the forefront of this field with the work that you're doing, particularly um, working on making um, the sex toy together. I take it it's singular because at one point it was prototypes plural, but um, there's now a singular toy coming out the other end. Yeah, so the way that we've done it, we um, we partnered with RMIT University in Melbourne initially. Um, they did some additional research for us to further validate the need, but also start to create some concepts. Um, off the back of that, we had four lead concepts um, that we really, really loved um, and that we could, it could have gone in any direction. And so we then tested those concepts with occupational therapists, as well as with um, the disabled community globally. So we did a bunch of um, focus groups and one-on-one interviews um, actually during lockdown the first time around um, yeah. to understand the pros and cons of each of the potential designs, which ones we thought were going to work the best, et cetera. And we got them in front of as many people as we could. Um, and then from that, we distilled all of that feedback and we landed on one lead design. Like we knew we wouldn't be able to launch four designs at once. That would, my head would have exploded. We'd have to pick <laughs> one at least to have our lead. Um, <clears throat> And so uh, from there, we did have one lead design. We evolved that design further, continuing to sort of um, review with the community as well as our OTs. Um, and then once we got that design evolved enough, we created really, really crude prototypes. So we created 10 prototypes, all of the same one. We sent that across um, uh, to 10 people who volunteered to be to be testers around Australia. Um, and they basically over the course of a couple, about a month um, tested it and then gave us um, feedback um, directly to me, directly to our design team. Um, and we included the occupational therapists they were working with or we were working with on those calls as well. So it was again, just a really collaborative collaborative process um, and really just pulling in everybody's different points of view, perspectives and expertise. And that's kind of the way that we've done this, the whole, um, every sort of step of the way is um, sort of testing um, and then valid, creating and then validating as we kind of move forward towards um, one singular product and then uh, launch. So we are now just finalizing the design of the first toy um, and then we'll hit pre-sales within the next, um, aiming for September. Um, you mentioned that you learned a lot during the prototyping what, and, and as somebody who does design work anyway in your day job, um, what, what did you find you learned particularly about prototyping in this process? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you get your designs and your stuff in front of the people who might be using it, you learn so much. It's so incredibly valuable. It's also incredibly nerve wracking because you've put so much of yourself and so much time into this and you believe in it. And like, it's, I'm always really, really nervous the first couple of um, testing calls that we go through because like, what if everyone hates it? <laughs> what, if, what if all the, all the negatives? But actually, you want to uncover those negatives as much as you want to know why people love it. You want to know what do you hate about it? What's not working for you? Because right now and, and in that um, instance, we were at a point where we could do whatever we wanted to with the design. We, we hadn't invested so much money in tooling or products or anything that we couldn't fundamentally change it um, if we needed to. Um, and so that was kind of, that was a big reason why we did the testing in the way that we did and why we created such crude prototypes to know that there might be some really fundamental things we need to shift here. And ultimately there's no um, financial cost in us shifting any of those. Yes, we spent time on this, but so what, if it's not right, we can go back and change it. 
Um, and so we learned a lot, like we always learn um, so much. There was a lot of things that people loved. So the devices kind of like if a um, body pillow and a foam ro roller had a love child, like it is quite large. Um, it has a holster in the middle to be able to hold vibrators and sleeves. Um, but it's also something that you hug into because that means we're transferring the reliance from fine motor skills in your hands over to gross motor skills and other body parts to be able to position things, get things in control. And it's just a really natural, allows people to hug on to think to it um, and actually cuddle it. And that's a really natural movement for everybody, um, disabled people, able-bodied people, and also as a, um, is a action that creates a lot of like emotional response in people from um, intimacy um, and positive feedback and also helps to get people who might be in their heads about things. Um, so one of the things we heard from quite a few people was that they really loved the huggable nature because it was comforting, it was incre increased intimacy, um, but also um, it kind of broke the negative um, cycle that was going on in their head that was creating anxiety. So if you've got hand limitations um, or you're used to your hands kind of giving out or getting tired before you're able to orgasm um, or to feel pleasure, then what ends up happening is that during the act of trying to give yourself pleasure, you start to get in your head about whether or not you're actually going to be able to get where you're trying to go to, whether you're not going to be actually orgasm or just feel nice. Um, and what we heard back, which was, I think, a, a really big, um, really important finding for us was because of the way that people were able to just hug into it and kind of position it and then let the toy do the rest of the work and take their hands out of the equation. It broke that negative cycle of anxiety for people around worrying that maybe they were gonna get tired or the device would slip or one way or another something was gonna happen or their disability was gonna act up um, that they weren't gonna be able to orgasm or even just feel pleasure at all. Um, because they're so in their head. So that was um, an unexpected positive consequence of the design, um, which we didn't really see coming around that sort of anxiety cycle, um, but which was also, I think, really, really interesting. I think the other um, hypothesis or assumption that we went into this with, which was broken, um, which was really, actually really, really great, um, is that we kind of assumed we, we, we had this assumption that um, we knew from prior testing that women preferred vibration over penetration. Um, if you could provide penetration too, great, but ultimately vibration was more important. Um, and for men, we had assumed that um, vibration was quite polarizing because we had talked to a lot of people about vibration and we found it to be quite polarizing. Like some guys were really into it. Some guys really weren't into it. And this round of testing actually debunked that assumption in that the people who the guys who thought they were um, not into vibration actually hadn't tried vibration. Wow. Um, and so it actually wasn't so, that it, so much that it was polarizing. It was actually more like um, that they just hadn't actually tried that sensation before. So they didn't think that they would like it, um, which was a different finding to what we had before. So that actually opened us up to like reviewing what we offered, who we offered it to, and also understanding that whilst some guys really wanted a sleeve-like device, something that they could penetrate, um, it wasn't a must-have and that vibration for a lot of guys was actually going to be better because not everybody can get an erection. And so if you're providing something for, um, uh, you know, males um, who, that which is only penetrative, then actually potentially leaving quite a few people out, um, even though all of our stuff will be quite gender fluid, I think that was a really big assumption that we had going into it, which was completely busted um, off the other side. So there are a few things like that, but those are the two that come to mind. And 
And what was great was that we had the design teams on all of these calls, all of the feedback calls. And so they were, you can tell a design team things time and time again from stuff that you've heard and, mm-hmm. and they're an amazing team and they have, they do listen, but it's way different when, than when you're sitting on a phone, actually on a, on an interview with somebody and you're actually listening to their voice and their emotion and their experience, mm-hmm. um, telling you what's working, what's not working. And even afterwards, um, when we had our kind of regroup and huddle, um, the lead design designer at Ver was like oh my god like I know you've told us those things before and he's like and I'm so sorry that we didn't listen to you and I was like well you did but like now you've heard it from the horse's mouth like now you actually now you understand why I kept banging on about that thing <laughs> um, because you've heard it as much as I have now um, so it was just a really I think awesome experience um, and just being able to have the, the design team and other people within the group on those calls um, and hearing people's responses just gives you that much more understanding makes the design stronger um, gives you more empathy and also gives you like way like so many different ideas as well um, which is really cool like the design team's notepads at the end were absolutely filthy this is the start of a a big kind of trajectory for you both I I, I think as you said you can't do them all at once now you've got to start with one but I suspect that there's an opportunity to expand significantly as you go forward Um, yeah um, we knew from like the beginning that um, we'd never be able to have one toy that hit everybody's like disability and also everybody's sexual preferences. Like both of those things are just such a massive range that trying to design for every, everything in one go would have been impossible. Um, and so we, the, the plan is definitely to have um, a range of different toys um, start to create new products off the back of them and also look at how we can adapt small things or make things more accessible that we create or even some of the things that are also already on the market. So there's a pretty, there's a, I think a massive opportunity, the more you dig into this space um, to do things for this market that then benefit this, this community, but also benefit everybody else as well. Completely. Yeah. Have you discovered a new genre of, of sex toys as well? Do you think during, during this, I mean, I've, I've heard a few um, interviews with people disabled and otherwise sort of, on how the the sex toys that are out there on the market existing can be used in like a variety of different ways and people use them in different ways and if it's like a internal um g-spot stimulator maybe they use that externally and, and different things but but it sounds like what you've hit upon is something i've never heard of before this whole you know comforting emotional mm. um kind of thing sounds sounds amazing sounds great but um, do you think you've do you think you've found found a new um, genre of toy in a way? I think I think we've definitely opened up um, the category of sex toys. Like I think yeah. Andrew coined this term um, disability driven design, um, and I think we definitely the way that we approach our design is based around people with different disabilities who can't currently access their own sexuality or what's on the market, um, whether everything ends up being, um, including that sort of cuddle, cuddly, huggable nature, I'm not, I'm not sure yet, um, but it, it has had like really, um, we always knew it was cool, but we did, I don't think we, any of us realized to what extent it had a positive effect. Yeah. 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 We did an, we did a, an episode of our Handicast, which is a podcast within the show that I produced. And so we did an episode with some of the testers, last week and they both said you know 
having the ability to cuddle this toy lessened my anxiety, made me feel better, made me feel more connected to my body, made me feel more connected to my disability experience through pleasure. Like we did, and I think we sort of knew that that was our goal. But to, again, to hear from the horse's mouth was like, oh wow, we've hit on something. Even in just the prototype, we've hit on something that's that is huge and is so much more an emotional experience than just get your random vibrator from the store we've hit on something that is gonna open up conversation around how to have different types of sex how to have sex that's about pleasure based sexuality versus like gotta get off gotta finish yeah but it's more about the 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 experience of getting there than i gotta get to the destination of being done so i think um just hearing that from our testers in the in hearing that from them as we were, were kind of doing it was like really impactful. I think it's really nice too to open up that space for people listening around how much work goes into the design of such things. You know, it's a, 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 a what a year and a half you're saying so far. Uh- it'd be more than over two years. So we had that original conversation over two years ago. Um, and then we started down the road of research. And I think it's taken, we, look, we could have probably had a, a toy to market way faster, but we've been really deliberate in making sure that we are actually, the last thing I'd want to do is put a toy onto market that doesn't actually solve the need. And in order to make sure that it does solve the need, you need to do this design thinking process, you need to do testing, you need to get it in front of people, um, you need to take feedback on board, um, you need to do like the right research. Um, and that just takes always way longer than you think it's going to. Um, and just getting a, a physical product on board just takes, or into the world just takes way longer in general, I think. Um, but then when you're actually trying to create something totally brand new that's never been designed for before, it just ends up taking even longer than that. Um, and I think if you had told us what our toy would look like at the beginning of this like neither one of us could have ever imagined this is what it would look like um it's so completely different to anything that's um that, that exists and if you saw it in somebody's bedroom you would definitely not be like oh that's a sex toy you'd be like oh that's like a weird like foam roller or some sort of like weird accessible uh, you know mobility aid therapy um, device or something yeah yeah um it doesn't look or like a, a, a cuddle pillow um it doesn't look like um, a sex toy in any way. And so when you, when you see other companies, um, you know, creating, uh, toys, they can get them to market really quickly, because I think if you look back and, and even some of the pictures you sent through in preparation for this, um, this, uh, podcast, like show some of the older, um, like sex toys from back in the day, like from like eons ago, and they don't look that different to the toys that are currently on the market. Um, so there's not a lot of innovation in this space. It's starting to become more innovative, but generally it's been sort of um, a quick moneymaker on renovation and just sort of like really cheap. Um, Adaptable versus like creation. Yeah. So what they, they'll do is they'll take a vibrator and they'll put a strap on it or they'll, they'll <laughs> make it so that one type of disability, one type of, of hand limitation could use it or one type of person with a disability could use the toy and they'll take the same idea of penetrative toy and say oh yeah this is for all bodies or for everyone but there's no like Heather was saying there's no innovation there's no there's no discussion of disability from ideation through to creation and so what Heather was saying earlier about you know the 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 term we coined which is disability driven design which is really having disabled people 
from the beginning of the idea all the way through to the to bring it to market. Mm. And so that's why I think what we're doing is different because from the beginning of Heather and I sitting down and having the idea, we've had hours of phone calls of like, okay, so how do your hands work? Like what how how would this work for you? How would how do you think the toy should look? And you know, getting the input of not just me, other team members with disabilities and testers with disabilities to make sure that it's something that could actually be used by this community and to to show that all the way through disability is at the forefront of what we're doing. Again, it's breathtakingly cool. Yeah. Um, is there anybody out there that you've come across in the world doing anything similar in your research? Um, yeah, so there... Um... When we first started, there was like a, a, a black hole of like basically nobody. There is a company out of the UK called um, Hot Octopus, um, and they've got sort of Pulse Duo and some really cool like Tektronic technology that allows things, the toy itself to move in an up and down motion. Um, and I think it was designed originally around people with spinal cord injuries um, to help increase sensation and movement for them. Um, but what we found in talking to peop other people with disabilities is that unfortunately didn't really overcome a lot of the barriers that were existing for people. So it still relied on a fairly significant amount of dexterity and, and hand uh, mobility and movement. And actually a lot of people felt couldn't actually like get it out of the packaging. I think Andrew, you were one of them, let alone um, get it on them. Um, and so it's a really cool device, but it didn't really, it didn't quite unlock the barriers that we were working on or we had identified. Um, since then, and more recently, there is a company that um, I believe is in Melbourne um, called XES Products, um, and they are also working on something. Um, I think they've actually, well, I know that they have just released what theirs will look like um, because I just got an email from them this morning. Um, so there are other people who are starting to work on it. Um, were sprinting to be first to market. Um, but ultimately, like when you look at the fact that there are so many people with this need in the market, like competition's not a bad thing. And there's definitely a room for, you know, more than one, um, more than one company that's uh, focusing on this. For sure. Yeah. Um, one of the things we talked about yesterday um, was wanting to create the light bulb moment through these conversations for people to go, oh, and one of the things that was in my head when you were talking before is how hard it is to be a teenager and to try to explore sexuality. And then how tricky this space is for parents of those teenagers with disability to consider how they might support that. And um, this feels like a really important idea to take into that space for consideration, um, the work you're doing and the way you're doing it. and also possibly for parents, the non-threatening nature of something that doesn't look overtly like a sex toy, that isn't the heteronormative, penetrative kind of like, right, we're into it, <laughs> but is actually about self-pleasure and vibration on the body and orgasm as part of learning and discovery. Um, I guess I'm sort of saying all of that. I'm wondering, Andrew, what your thoughts are for parents who are wrestling with how to even start conversations with their teenagers Oh, uh, do we have like five more hours to have that? <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, there's not a lot of education for sex education for disabled teenagers or their parents, because the only way we tend to talk about sexuality and disability, if we do sex education around sex and disability, 
is through risk. So all the parents will hear is if your child has an intellectual disability or a physical disability, they're at a higher propensity to be abused, which is true. And those numbers are true. But unfortunately, there's nothing really out there led by disabled people that says you can have great sex as a disabled person or a disabled teenager and have pleasure. And I think parents need to like, I think my mom and our mom was different in the sense that she was very gung-ho. She's very, she, her and I talk a lot about sex and disability and a lot of like her and I are very open. So our mom is I think a different case. She, she's, she's very, very free with those conversations. But I think for the average parent with a disabled kid, I think it starts with even before they become a teenager, so many disabled children are touched by doctors and medical professionals and OTs and PTs just touched automatically because they need assistance and they're touched without being asked, do you want to be touched? Is it okay for me to touch you now? So even before we get into the sexual part, asking young disabled kids, hey, this doctor is going to touch you. This PT is going to touch you. Are you okay with that? How do you feel about that? Is it all right? Starting with those conversations first, or like, you know, mommy and daddy have to touch you to help you do care. Like starting with consent from a really young age and getting them to understand that they need the help and it's okay. But being given the opportunity to be asked, I think is where we start before we get into like, how do we talk to our teenager or disabled teenager about sex? Um, when I was coming out of the closet at 16, I remember my mom saying to me after I come out came out, she said, you know, I'm really glad you told me it's no problem. We love you. It's great. But then she also said, you know, it is going to be harder for you because of your disabilities. I remember her saying this to me and she hasn't been wrong. It has been harder because of my disability and because of the way people treat disabled people trying to be sexual. So I think parents also having frank conversations with their, their disabled teenagers about how their disability will impact them in adulthood and not just doing the, not just having the run of the mill birds and the bees. Here's how sex is going to work. Best of luck to you. But having conversations about, you know, here's how your disability might impact this. Or did you have any questions about how your disability will play a role in this? And unfortunately, there are not many resources for parents of disabled kids to have that. So the hope is with Handy, you know, we can build an educational piece where we can also talk about those things for parents and for disabled youth to have more resources. I definitely feel another book coming on. Yeah. <laughs> like 100%. Yeah. yeah, it's such a gap. Yeah, yeah and we it, realized like the this book, the first book kind of touches on that as well. And like a, a lot of, um, we know that parents have purchased the book for their kids or um, even some of their, the kids sort of, or early teens sort of asking about the book. Um, and, that, and it gives sort of a nice insight to, for both for parents to read, to help them navigate some of those conversations and, and give them a slightly different understanding of what um, their kids might be going through. And, but, and it also gives um, kids a sense of, you know, I'm not alone in this um, because what, one of the other things we found um talking to a lot of people over the last few years is that unfortunately many people with disabilities are both systemically and culturally basically told from a very early age that they shouldn't be 
that they're not sexual, that they're non-sexual or asexual, or, you know, you're disabled, you don't need to be in sex ed. Um, And a lot of times, um, because sex ed is taught as a portion of physical education, um, systemically, you're kind of removed from even having the choice of whether or not you want to participate in the, not that anybody's sex ed in school was like all that mind blowing. I think we all sat through the banana and the condom (laughs) demonstration. But I think it, 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 even, even if it's, you know, not really all that, even if everyone's jumping online to Google their own stuff later on, I think just being included within that is a bit, it represents a much bigger um, factor um, and says something to you, whether or not it's like, yeah, basically if you're excluded from that conversation, but you're also at the same time having sexual feelings, then that starts to where that rift starts to come in of feelings of like uncertainty and shame of your own sexuality. And you're telling me I shouldn't be sexual because I'm disabled, but like I'm waking up every night with wet dreams. So like, which one is it? (laughs) It's quite confusing. Um, And so like the more we talk to people, the more we also recognize that within the sex ed perspective, there's a ton of um, content and work that needs to be done um, for all parties. Yeah. I mean, it's not as if it's uh, uh, an easy or straightforward subject anywhere. There's multiple layers. um, And if you insert disability in there as well, it's, um, yeah, I imagine parents would find it quite, quite daunting. Well, yeah, I think also there are, you know, there are groups of people in society we look at and treat as if they were not sexual. I was talking yesterday about some work with um, people in elder care in res homes and the fact that um, the work, uh, a lady um, we spoke to, Jane, she was amazing. And part of her job is first to remind people running rest homes that their residents are either having sex, thinking about having sex, um, uh, or, or um, not for some, but for most they are. And a policy around that might be quite helpful because yeah, nobody's yeah. even had the conversation. Um, yeah. And, you know, so there are whole swathes of society for whom we haven't even started. Um, so I think this is a really beautiful place to start directly in that space of pleasure. And I love what you said, Andrew, sense education. Oh, no, I said sex, but I like that. We can say that I said it. <laughs> oh, I thought I had sense education. I thought that was a beautiful term. We can totally attribute that to me. I'm happy okay. to <laughs> talk it up on your own. Yeah. Well, I think for young children, sense education as part of sex education and what you're talking about in terms of uh, what feels good to me and is this okay with me? Um, yeah, it feels like a good place to start and a good call out. Yeah, because I remember being a disabled child and going to multiple PTs and OTs and doctors and just letting them touch me because they were the authority figure and they were the doctor that was going to make whatever I was there for better. So we didn't even think about, there was no question of consent because we just let them. But I think in our, in our in the world we live in now, just asking your disabled child, do you feel okay with this? I mean, and I always did, like everything was fine, but I think giving the child the option to say, I don't want to do this right this second. Let me give me, you know, two, five minutes to relax, to get comfortable with the idea of the stranger touching me. Cause yeah. I think so many disabled people, when they enter the medical system or the PT system or the OT system, even as adults, because we've, we've been touched as children, without being asked we just assume that it's okay and whatever they do is okay and then 
you know, something something dangerous can happen where they can drop us or do something wrong to us that doesn't feel super great. And then we're left dealing with it. So I think talking to your disabled kid about what feels good will give them a healthy start in adulthood when they start exploring their sexuality and start being sexual. They'll know right off the bat what consent is because they've been doing it since they were young. It's a massive topic. I think um, the biggest, the kind of the meta topic across it all is communication. And it's not something we're great at. Learning about how to describe pleasure, to ask for pleasure, to say if something's working or not, that's a human issue as well. I think that's part of the human condition for most of us. Yeah. And try to find ways to talk to each other. It's part of the gig. Yep. Completely. I think communication, we're all of us, whether we're disabled or not, we're pretty shit at it. So we have to do better. And I think one of the powerful things about being disabled is being disabled forces you to have really intimate conversations with people really fast about your body, about your needs, about so like I think disabled people are the are the, are the leaders in this in that aspect of communicating because we know we know how to do it every day in terms of care in terms of our needs, in terms of all those things, we know how to be very direct about what our needs are, but it can be different when you're disabled and trying to access sexuality because you want to be sexy. You want to be cool. You want to be like, you want to be viable and to be super communicative sometimes isn't how hot sexuality is portrayed. So it can be hard for us to, um, to be able to communicate because we want to we want to emulate what we're seeing on screen, what we're seeing in movies, what we're seeing on TV, which is able-bodied people not talking and having great sex. <laughs> well, they're probably not having great sex if they're not talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Nicely <laughs> 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 good at acting. <laughs> awesome. Right. Well, this is great. Thank you so much. We look forward to talking again. Thank you. Yeah. It's such a pleasure, and we'd love to. And if ever you want us back, we'll be happy to come lovely perfect awesome thank you brilliant, brilliant. thank you so much nice to see you okay thanks guys see ya yeah. really hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did if you want to check out more of handy you can head on over to that's handy.co that's t-h-a-t-s-h-a-n-d-i dot c-o there you can register for the newsletter where you'll get updates about the toy and you can also buy their amazing book the handy book of love lust and disability They're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just check out That's Handy. If you want to follow more of Andrew himself, you can check out his website, andrewgerza.com. That's Gerza, G-U-R-Z-A. He's Andrew Gerza underscore on all his social channels, and he also has an award-winning podcast of his own called Disability After Dark. recently won gold in the Outstanding Adult Series at the Canadian Podcast Awards, so give it a listen. Once you finish doing all of that, and if you so desire, you can head on over to our Instagram or Facebook at sexandspace.com. That's sexandspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. And flick us a follow. We'll not only let you know when our new pods are dropping, but we'll be treating you to some video clips and bonus content from our interviews too. Many, many thanks to Heather and Andrew for this one, to my co-host Jane and to the wider String Theory team. And of course, to you guys for making it all the way to the end. See you for the next one. If you found some of this material a little challenging, 
Keep coming back and we'll make it really challenging.